It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to In The Field, a new podcast by IB Times UK. Each week, we talk to journalists and stringers, activists and authors about the global stories that matter. This week we're talking Syria and I'm joined by Kyle Orton, who is a um, columnist for us and also an associate fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. Um, also joined by Sophia Lotto-Perseo, our reporter, foreign reporter, who writes a lot about Syria. Um, hi to you both. Hello. Hello. Kyle wrote a piece for us yesterday, um, which you can check out on the website and we will link through ACAST, um, basically looking at the strategy for Syria um, after ISIS were pushed out of al-Bab. Um, so I guess we could start, Carl, by you giving us kind of an idea about how significant that, that battle was um, in terms of beating ISIS in Syria. It's very significant on its own terms because this was the previous headquarters for ISIS's foreign intelligence service. It was the place where that branch directed the attacks around the world from, and it had been before the Turks cut off the border it was one of the places where the foreign fighters were received and, and were distributed throughout the, the territory of the caliphate. Um, Al-Bab is also now the central front line between all of the major contending parties. So the regime coalition, Turkey and its allies, and the, uh, the PKK forces. Uh, so it's, they all converge, and ISIS, and they all converge around uh, Al-Bab. So it's a, a fairly, it's a volatile situation. Uh, but now that al-Bab itself has fallen to Turkey and its allies among the rebels, uh, the question then turns to Raqqa, because al-Bab was the last city outside the, the Syrian capital, its Syrian capital that ISIS has. Uh, and the the question is really whether it's going to be the uh, YPG PKK forces or Turkey and its allies that go into to Raqqa. And that's it. It's, this dispute's heating up again today because the Turkish president threatened to attack the uh, YPG forces in in Nimbij. Uh, so, yeah, that's the the trajectory that we're on. It's incredibly complicated, isn't it? Because um, there doesn't seem to be any good uh, partner here. It's not like there's a an opposition that we can coalesce around. Everybody kind of has a bad side. Yeah, I, the problem is that we wasted a lot of time. Uh, when the easier decision would have been to build up a credible opposition early on, and once we refused to do that. It left other forces to take a hand, and they pursued very narrow interests, and they worked in competition. So even the rebellion's backers have all worked at cross-purposes with each other. 
and it's that's helped to fragment what could have otherwise been a unified cause. And the Russians obviously moved in to save Assad in 2015. The Iranians have moved in to save him in 2013. So it's just been able to spin out of control and to take a course that we wouldn't like. But it's also the problem is that the the option of now using the, the Kurdish YPG forces has real complications, including even in the very narrow sense of fighting ISIS and fighting jihadism in general. It has real downsides to use them to go into Raqqa. I find it interesting how in your article you refer to the Kurdish forces overall as PKK um, yeah. without really like describing the different factions. Why, why do you choose to do that? I think it, it, in that case it was simply for space reasons um, because it's it's complicated with all the acronyms as it's meant to be. Um, the PKK uses these various acronyms because it helps to avoid the terrorism designation that's against it from Turkey, the European Union, and the United States. Uh, but its forces are all one. It's not even as dissimilar as, say, Al-Qaeda in its branches, which are geographically separated. It's just one organization with various fronts, and it moves uh, men, materiel, and everything else around in that. And so it's uh, somebody who's the PKK in Turkey crosses the border and becomes YPG. And if they cross into Iran, they become PJK. It seems like the Department of State is quite happy to uh, use that as the basis of their definitions, because that, that's basically when they're asked, um, why is the PKK a terrorist organization and the SDF and the YPGs aren't? It seems to be, well, the YPG are in Syria. Yes, it's a very, it's an odd situation with the State Department. Its own website until 2014 described the YPG as uh, the PKK's organization in Syria. They've since taken that down. Uh, they do insist that they are separate organizations, um, but it's just not true. But the YPG, as I understand it, are no more palatable to the Turks than the PKK, right? Yeah, well, the Turks recognize them as the same organization. Right. And what, so what I don't understand is you've got the SDF as well, right? Who, the Syrian right. Defense Forces, who are the Western-backed, mainly Kurdish fighters, but also include Arab fighters. Yes. So the Kurds in, historically were kind of willing to maybe accept Assad a little bit because he gave them a certain yep. amount of freedom up there in the north to kind of have their own little, their own little state. So... What happens if, if ISIS do get pushed out of Raqqa and you have this situation where you have the Kurds and the regime forces? What, I mean, what, do they start fighting each other then, or is, is, is that the way that it ends? It's difficult to know. The PKK was an asset of Assad's government until really quite recently, and even after the crackdown began, once the Turks threatened to invade in the late 1990s, um, the PKK still had a lot of operational freedom in Syria right up until the the outbreak of the uprising. And then it was to the PKK that the regime chose to hand over these territories when it withdrew in 2012. But it's a the regime is really against federalism. So if it can take back these areas, it will probably try. But it may also cut some kind of deal, especially because of the, the Russia equation, because Russia has quite deep links with the PKK as well. Mm. And Russia likes the PKK as a lever against Turkey. So it's a, the likelihood is probably that they'll work out some kind of um, cold truce in the aftermath. And of course, I suppose there's still an awful lot of Syrian Arabs who aren't, aren't either on the Kurdish side or the Assad side. And where, where do they fit into a future of kind of ISIS-free Syria? 
Right. I, I think the answer is that they will be the reason why Syria wouldn't be ISIS-free in such a situation. Uh, they would see it as a tactical ally, if nothing else, uh, to just sort of assert themselves and assert some kind of agency in the system. Uh, the problem with the SDF idea is that the uh, PKK has purposely made it so that the Arabs do not diminish its power within that structure. The initial aim of it was that you were going to have, you'd have the SDF umbrella and you could then use the, the PKK's military force because obviously they've got three decades of experience so they have uh, some better skills. And then you could make it more politically acceptable by putting the Arabs within it and sort of balancing out the, the Kurdish forces. But it didn't work because the, the PKK vested the groups that came into it and subjects them to like, ideological sessions before they're allowed to join. And then once they do join, they're kept deliberately weak and dependent. So how do you see the battle for Raqqa going now? What's, what's next? The basic two options, as you say, are the SDF or the Turks. Um, it looks like it's going to be the SDF. They've sent new equipment to them. There were trucks, I think, delivered last week and various other types of um, equipment. And the Trump administration itself has said that it wants to defeat ISIS, quote-unquote, as quickly as possible. And the SDF are the only group in position to push ISIS out of the city within a, a real short time frame. Uh, if you wanted it done sustainably, I think the Turkish option with the Arab rebels is the option that makes more sense. But that would take, it would be a very heavy lift now, though, to get that done. Why would it and make it would more delay. sense to have Turkish forces advancing towards Raqqa? It would, it would just create more conflict with the Kurdish forces that are already there. And eventually that would end up giving an advantage to ISIS, really. I think that's coming anyway. Uh, if, the, if the Kurds take Raqqa, the next thing obviously will be a, an intra-war, a sectarian war between um, Arabs and Kurds. It's more a political war than an ethnic one, but it would be that ISIS would have a lot of room to move. And Al-Qaeda, of course, would be able to move into that vacuum as well once ISIS is gone. Except that the Kurds really have no interest in Raqqa, right? I mean, wouldn't they just withdraw no. to their areas? And that's it. The two options basically are that the PKK stays in occupation of Raqqa, which would allow ISIS some space to come back, uh, or the PKK pulls back, which would allow ISIS space to come back. And then the only the, the option then is just trying to persuade the Turks not to then go after the Kurds in Syria after they've got rid of ISIS. Yeah, I, I think the Turks could well go after them before then, but it would be... I mean, the Turks in a lot of ways have been really quite restrained. I think the, the Erdogan government, because of the military, because it's uncertainty that the military would obey its orders, has not been so aggressive. If it had been the general staff still in charge, I'm not sure that they wouldn't have intervened a lot sooner. Right. But then the other option is also a heavier intervention from the United States um, sending ground troops, which is something that I believe uh, General Jim Mattis is considering right now. I, th I think that's an option that could happen either way. I mean, you could have the U.S. troops. I think the U.S. is going to increase its troop presence in Syria, no matter what. It's just a question of whether you put them in with the SDF or with a Turkish. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Cool, amazing strategy. But then, so if you get the U.S. troops fighting alongside the Turks, right, then the U.S. are act- actively fighting against Assad, right? Because the Turks oppose Assad. The Turks do oppose Assad, at least theoretically, but the Euphrates Shield operation has specifically not right. focused on okay. Assad. It allowed Aleppo to fall, for instance, in order to secure the Apache territory in the northwest of the Aleppo province. So the Turks have tried to uh, deconflict, as we might say, with the Assad regime since its intervention. And Raqqa presents no conflict with Assad because Assad can't move into the east. Well, there, were, there was uh, news, I think, yesterday of clashes between the Turkish-backed rebels um, around Al-Bab and uh, yeah. the Assad forces, and I think 20 soldiers were killed, but that's according to Turkish news sources. Yeah, it does happen. There was also there was a Russian airstrike, I think, that hit the Turkish forces a while ago. But, but all sides play it down because they don't want a full-scale war. These are sort of just their tactical frontline clashes. Do you think that the that, that Trump and and Mattis? Do you think that they? What do you think of their their policy? I mean, maybe we don't know too much about it yet, but when it comes to Raqqa and Syria generally, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we just don't know. Uh, there's every chance they'll continue the Obama strategy, which prioritised the SDF, uh, but there is also they, they may turn back to Turkey in some way. Mattis, it seems, is more sympathetic to the idea of Turkey uh, taking the lead in this, but. In the sense that he's um, a more traditional type that would focus on allies, but it's not certain. And it may well be, as I say, because the political will is to, or the political trend rather, is to clear the city quickly. Um, that would save the SDF. Mm. And then, of course, while we're discussing these, the Geneva talks are happening right now, and there's no real presence of the U.S. or there doesn't seem to be a particular line that the U.S. wants to um, promote and everyone is really just looking at Russia. Well, Russia managed to use force in a way that meant it could then capitalize politically and the U.S. just didn't ever do that at any point. Even the support it's given to opposition forces never altered the battlefield. It never strategically made a difference uh, and the Russians did. And the U.S. has been pushed out because now it just doesn't have very many cards to play. The Russians have their 
area of influence, and it is it, it is influence rather than control. Um, the Assad regime and Iran's troops on the ground do often defy the Russians when they make a deal that's more um, it's soft, if you like, when they agree to do things that the regime doesn't particularly like. Uh, the regime and its militias will act out. Turkey has its area of influence, and so that's where the the balance of power shifted. Even the Gulf states have been pushed out a lot as well. Turkey and Qatar used to sponsor a lot of the same people, but Qatar's aid now has to go through Turkey. Well, it always had to go through Turkey physically, but it now goes through Turkey's operation. And so Qatar's influence has been diminished as well. I know it's probably um, fairly easy to point out contradictions in Trump's foreign policy, but it does seem strange that he was talking about kind of not getting embroiled in these conflicts. And now we're sitting here talking about the possibility of ground troops in Syria, which is something Obama would never have considered. No, I think the problem was that it was both administrations, both the last one and this one, that they had this monomaniacal focus on ISIS. And the problem is you can't just tackle ISIS by attacking ISIS. Um, it, even if you just strictly eliminated ISIS solely from the conflict, you're then left with the aftermath of it, the second order problems. And I'd say one of them is going to be that Al-Qaeda is going to try and fill that vacuum when ISIS gets pushed out, not just in Syria, but in Iraq. And if it's pushed out, if ISIS is pushed out of Raqqa by uh, the PKK forces, that gives room to Al-Qaeda as well, which has made a lot of hay in Syria from these clashes on the front lines with uh, Kurdish forces and with other sectarian militias. So it's a, yeah, you can't just do one. And it's not sort of looking at a broader picture, not having an idea what you want to fill that vacuum Mm. And not planning to fill that vacuum with something sustainable is a, a real problem. And I suppose that the, I, w- I want to talk to you in a minute about kind of the method and how you how you do your research, because we're very interested in that on the podcast. But um, in terms of what's happening in Iraq, how is that impacting Syria? It's not affecting it overly much at the moment. It's been sort of, they have more or less managed to isolate the two. Uh, the Hashtashabi militias, the, the Shia militias cut off the, the exit from Mosul into Syria, and they're now surrounding Tal Afar. Uh, so it's, yeah, they're, they're more or less separate at this stage. There are still connections because they can cross backwards and forwards over the border, but it's not a, it's not a massive flow as it used to be. But is there an idea that when, when eventually Mosul falls and maybe Tal Afar falls, that there'll be far more ISIS fighters flooding into Syria and making that a harder fight? It's certainly possible, and a lot of the foreigners who are currently in Mosul may well um, try to move back home. The, the big thing, though, is that even once Raqqa and Mosul have gone, the areas in western Anbar province and in eastern Deir ez-Zor in Syria will still be hideouts for these people. Yeah. I'm interested because both you, as far as I know, don't get to Syria very often, as all journalists don't, um, and the same with Sophia and myself. I'm interested, though, how you... You're obviously quite an expert in these areas. Now, how do you do your research and make sure that you're kind of getting the right information, given that there's so much misinformation out there? There's a great deal. Uh, Open source is um, very useful. There is a lot of good quality open source out there, and there are people either on the borders or in and around Syria. Uh, You can also speak to some of the people involved. Um, They just, they're around on social media platforms and, and other things. Uh, you can also speak to other people who are working on it, who are sometimes they have family in and around the place. And in Turkey as well, there are refugees who still have connections in with rebel groups or other groups uh, in and around Syria. 
Yeah, it's a sort of collaborative effort in the end. And was your focus always on Syria, or have you been been in the Middle East generally? I, I focused mostly on Syria. I think I, I focused a lot on. I kind of came into it looking at Arab reform efforts, sort of efforts towards um, democratic or representative rule. And so the Arab Spring was kind of timely in that sense. Mm. And then so Syria took over from that as a sort of focus. Uh, but yeah, I, more sort of Syria and Iraq um, and Turkey and Iran a bit rather than, say, with North Africa or the Gulf. In your piece, you talk quite... I, I really enjoyed reading the bit about what Al-Bab used to be as this kind of experiment in revolutionary government. Um, I didn't know that, actually, and I thought that was really fascinating. And it's incredible now, looking looking back at just four years, even less ago, that that these places were like that. Yeah, it's a horrible thing because a lot of people forget it. So now they just look at it and see that it's, or they think they see that it's either Assad or a, a terrorist takeover of Syria. Uh, and it just, it, the regimes worked very hard to make that the, the choice, but it wasn't. And there was a lot of people who could have been helped and could have been, um, could have been the next Syria, could have been a new Syria and a better Syria than the Assad family ownership. Uh, but we never really chose to take that option when it was there. Uh, the rebels fought ISIS, for instance, in 2014, and they pushed them out of a lot of areas in northern Syria and really cornered them in Raqqa. Uh, but we, we didn't help them. We didn't move to, to help them finish the job. And, and then ISIS grew back and took over Derizor and Mosul and uh, what happened, as we now know. Who, who do you mean when you say we? I would say the Western Alliance, so led by the United States, certainly, uh, but Europe and NATO. Hmm. Do you think it's too late now for anything, I mean, for that to come back? I think probably the better options are gone now. Uh, but the, the problem is it's not... One can be fatalistic about it, but the problem is that the solutions offered to say if um, you said a regime victory, if you just were cold-blooded about it and said we're about just allowing them to just conquer the country and at least stabilise it, and they can't do it. And the Kurds can't conquer all of Syria either. And any attempt to try would lead to even worse consequences. Mm. Uh, so in some sense, the option that was there four years ago, which is to help localist rule in, in Syria, um, is still the only option that would give us any kind of respite from the, the consequences of Syria, which have destabilized Europe as well as, as, well as the region. Listen, Carl, thanks so much for your time, and Sophia also. Thank you. If you want to read either of their articles, and there are many um, on these these issues, then we will be linking them on ACAST so you can check them out. And if you haven't already, I would encourage you to rate and review us on iTunes. And until next week, thanks very much and take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.